Well, before we turn to God's Word and give our attention to God's Word, two other uh, things here. Uh, one is, just a show of hands, if there's anyone here who needs a Bible. Anyone need a Bible this morning? It would be helped if you have one to follow, us, uh, follow along with us. I think the brother in the corner raised it. Did you need one, brother? No? Telling stories on you? Yeah? Probably else would keep them high there. Bring your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. You now own uh, one of the most precious things that we think we could give you, and that's your own copy of God's Word. And so we pray that you would treasure that, that you would read it every day, uh, memorize it, and, and give your life to it, and you will find that it gives life to you. Uh, and so we pray that you would take that and be blessed by it. Anybody else need a Bible? All right, well, let's get our homework assignment done here. Last week, we were in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Uh, is there anybody who wants to recite that for us? Go ahead, Max, pop up. Y'all encourage Max this morning. Amen. All right. Amen. Let, let's pray for Sydney now. Let's pray again for Sydney. Father, we thank you for Sydney. We thank you for the International Justice Mission. We thank you for their work of promoting justice around the world, of helping children and women escape various forms of trafficking, of working with local governments and others to, uh, yeah, to bring justice into the world. And we thank you for Sydney's role. We thank you for lifting her up in that organization. Um, giving her opportunity and promotion in that organization. And we pray that you would be with her right now as she travels to Nigeria. We pray that her travel would be safe. We pray that you keep her safe while in country. We pray that the trip would be effective. And we pray, oh Lord, that you would uh, give her opportunity to launch out from there to do even more work, not only in that land, but across the continent and across the world. Um, thank you for the many ways you let your people uh, pursue your justice and righteousness in the world. Now we pray that you would bless it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Amen, 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 amen. Well done. We're we going to tell Sydney her man was showing out when she went out of town. All right. Anybody else? All right, here we go. I, I, you're in the shadows. Who is that? Hey, what's up, Tyrell? Come on, brother. Give it to us. All right. Okay. Amen, amen, amen. 
Listen, listen. That the Shakespearean English of the King James has never sounded more black. I love it. I love it. When man hit that song, song. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Great job. You already up, Colin? Come on, give it to us, Doc. Okay. All right. Amen, amen, amen. It's, it's the drama for me. <laughs> it's a dramatic reading. I love that. I love that. Jeremiah, were you jumping up to, to recite, brother? Oh, he's like, no, I'm going outside. <laughs> amen. Anybody got the whole chapter? Oh, you got the whole chapter? All right, come on, Josiah. All right.
on, come on, come on, come on. Feel good? You feel good? That's what's up. That's what's up. Amen. Now, for, for the sister, give us the recitation of chapter one. Just love to see the brothers, man. Love to see the brothers putting it down. Sister Ashley, come on. Amen, 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 amen. That's what's up. That's what's up. Well done. I realized that I dismissed the children too soon. I wanted to give the kids an opportunity to do like a one verse or however much they have. So next week, y'all hold me to that, okay? Amen. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of, number one, just having your word when we recognize there are many nations and people who don't have your word in their language, we, we pray for them and we pray for the translators and missionaries who would take the gospel and the scripture to them, give them grace to, to take only the gospel and the scripture, that they might hear it cleanly and purely and, and enculturate it in their own lives and cultures. And we thank you for the grace of memorizing your word. Thank you for minds that can hold truths and thank you, Lord, for giving us grace to, to hide these truths there in particular. Help us to, to continue to feed upon this book by faith. And we pray, pray speak to us now as we continue uh, in your instructions for the church. Instruct us, teach us, mold us into the likeness of Christ. Help us to hear your word mixed with faith, Lord. Remove from us unbelief of every sort and, and let us trust you more fully and more completely. Speak now, we pray, to your church. Your servants listen. Amen. So I want to begin this sermon. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Uh, in our series, which we have called Instructions for the Church, 
because that's really what the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are about. These are called the pastoral epistles, and they are about how the church should operate itself, how pastors should lead, how people should uh, respond and serve, and how it is we are to live together as a community. And as I said earlier in the service, we decided to do this series and all the teaching that we've been doing this calendar year um, because we are re-emerging as a church from a long period of being unable to meet together and to fellowship, and, and maybe some things have fallen into disrepair. And so this is our way of, of tuning some things up, of mending fences, and uh, engaging again uh, in the life of the church the way the Lord instructs us. Now, I said I wanted to begin this sermon with a confession. It's this. In chapter 2, Paul comes to giving us instructions about prayer. And there are a couple of topics in the Christian life, I don't know about you, but they almost always produce guilt. So if you ask somebody when the last time they shared the gospel is, many of us will, will wince and feel a sense of guilt about our inactivity in evangelizing, right? Uh, if you ask people about their prayer lives, most people will have some sense of guilt, right? That the first instinct would be, even if they are faithful in prayer, will be to say, I'm still not, I don't pray as much as I ought or about all the things that I ought, et cetera. And so there's this sense of guilt. And you feel that sense of guilt even more if, if in fact, you have been struggling in your evangelistic life or your prayer life, if that's not been regular. Um, and I pray regularly, but I don't, I don't pray as I ought, beloved. And I'm looking in this word and preparing to preach this word this week and just been quickened and convicted and instructed in ways in which my prayer life really should be more full than it is. Not in that, not in that sort of um, kind of humble way of, oh, I know I could pray more, but just it really needs to be more complete, more full, more organized, um, and more fervent, right? So I don't preach this sermon to you as I hope I preach all the sermons to you as a fellow traveler, right? And I just want to say up front, as we talk about prayer, I'm, I'm mainly preaching to me. So if you get nothing out of this sermon, blame it on the Lord for convicting me, right, uh, about, about my own prayer life and, and prayerlessness in so many ways. Um, and so I just want to begin that way, right? And perhaps, perhaps you're like me, and perhaps there's medicine in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7. Let me, let me give you the main point of this, this paragraph, uh, and then we'll unpack it. I'm, I'm going to put the main point in the form of a, of a cliche, right? You've all heard this before, and you've probably said it. And like many cliches, we say it without really thinking about it, without really thinking about it deeply, even if we believe it. And, that, and that's simply this. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. It really does. And this text is calling us really to believe that and to act on that. That, that our prayer would change us, would change the society that we're in, would change the eternal future of people around us and that we care about. But if we don't believe prayer changes things, we, we won't pray as we ought, will we? Or if that just becomes kind of light cliche to us, we won't pray as we, we pray as we ought. So I'm praying, even as I preach this, that the Lord would press into my hearts and any hearts that need it a deeper sense and realization that this thing we call prayer changes things. Now, if you're the note-taking type, let me give you my outline. We'll put it this way. When, when the church gathers in prayer, it leads to three things. When the church gathers in prayer, it leads to, number one, peace and piety. Peace and piety, P-I-E-T-Y. That's what we see in verses one and two. Number two, when the church gathers in prayer, it leads to God's pleasure and salvation. It pleases God and it produces salvation. And number three, when the church gathers in prayer, it leads to putting Jesus at the center of our lives, to putting Jesus at the center of our lives. First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse one, down to verse seven. 
the Apostle Paul writes there on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So the Apostle Paul is, as you know, writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. He's instructing Timothy, this young pastor, on how to lead a church that Paul planted in Ephesus. Now, you'll notice as you read through this letter, this word urge comes up several times. Uh, in the book. So there's a sense of urgency, of insistence that, that is really fueling Paul as he's writing. He's not writing an abstract theological treatise. He's not just writing a pleasant how are you doing letter. He's certainly concerned for Timothy, but this matter of pastoral ministry, this matter of organizing the church rests on the apostle's heart as an urgent matter. And so he began, you remember, in chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrine. That's really where he begins the life of the church, with the teaching of doctrine and the urging of Timothy to protect the pulpit, to protect the teaching, to make sure that the people are hearing the truth and not fabrications. Then he kind of, as he begins to talk about the grace of God and the mercy of God, he begins to think about his own testimony, and he just has to stop for a moment and give some testimony, doesn't he? He said, look, I was the worst. I was formerly a a persecutor, a blasphemer, an insolent opponent, but I found mercy. God was merciful to me because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And he says, you know, you ought to believe the gospel. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, testimony of whom I am foremost. And so after that period of testimony, he comes back then in verses 18 to 20. He reminds Timothy to keep that first charge, not only with regard to the church, but to keep that charge with regard to himself. And he mentions particularly now Hymenaeus and Alexander and the result of departing from the truth, which is to shipwreck your faith. And you can do that so badly that the only remedy for departing the truth is to be handed over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. So when he gives instructions to the church, he very often starts with teaching. Teach the truth, teach the gospel, guard against error. But the next thing he comes to is right here in chapter 2, verse 1. It's prayer. It's prayer. If I was summarizing verses 1 and 2, I might summarize it this way. He tells Timothy to lead the church in such a way the church prays all kinds of prayer, verse 1, for all kinds of people, verse 2, so that we might have peaceful and pious lives. You see that? He says, pray all kinds of prayer. He says, I I urge then that that supplications, the fancy word that means requests, asking God for things that we need. I urge then that supplications and prayers, seems kind of weird to say pray prayers, But there, I think he probably has in mind the the early Christian habit of gathering together for prayer meetings. They used to do that in Jerusalem in the temple. Uh, They used to do that every day in Jerusalem in the temple. And I, I think this is the habit of the early church. When you read the book of Acts, you just see them over and over again assembling in, in prayer meetings, praying in people's homes late into the night. Peter's in jail. We better pray. While we're praying, the angel sets Peter loose, and Peter comes to the door. You remember that story? The little girl goes to the door. It's Peter. She comes back and says, Peter, out of jail. And they don't believe her? Because even while they were in the midst of prayers, they didn't quite believe that prayer changes things. But they were praying, a praying people. 
And so he says, hey, look, look, make supplications, ask God for what you need, gather together in the gathered prayers of the church, intercessions, that form of prayer where we stand in the gap for somebody else. That's what it means to intercede. We stand in for them. They are maybe sick. They maybe need a job. They maybe are struggling relationally in some way. Maybe, maybe children have gone a bit wayward. Whatever the case is, there's this ministry of intercession where the church is called to, to stand in the gap in prayer. He says, pray those kind of prayers too. And, and pray thanksgivings, plural. We'll see the S at the end. Pray thanksgivings. How many things do we have to give God thanks for? If we ever need, if we ever need subject matter for our prayer, all we need to do is stop for a moment and say, Lord, I thank you for, and start filling in the blank. Anytime we stop, even for a moment, to think about who God is and what God has done for us, we will have reason to pray. We will have reason to give thanksgiving. We'll have reason to pray prayers of praise. We'll have reasons to pray prayers of adoration. We will have reasons to exult in God, to delight in him, for he has been delighted to bless us. Paul says, now, I want you to pray all kinds of prayers. We could add to this list confessions and, and other kinds of prayers. But you see here, his conception of the church is that it's urgent business that the church be a praying community. That there be a people who gather to talk to God. And that's all prayer really is. It's talking to God in all these kinds of ways. And, and what I think this suggests to us is that our, our prayer lives, in that sense, ought to be rich conversations. And we talk to God about everything, things that we're thankful for, things that we need, things that other people need. Uh, we talk to God together as a group. In all these kinds of ways, we, we're meant to have this rich, verbal, conversational relationship with God. And God delights in that. He invites that. He calls us to that. And notice now, he tells us to pray not only all kinds of prayers, but he tells us to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. He says, pray these things for all people. That's the rich, the poor, the black, the white, the yellow, the brown, the male, female, the young, old, the powerful, the weak. Right? And then he gives us examples for kings, for rulers. And keep in mind, Paul's in the ancient world where kings and emperors thought themselves to be gods and, and, and had no limits on their power and often were, were corrupt. You're like, them busters need prayer for kings and, in fact, all those who are in positions of authority. This is why in our pastoral prayers, I hope you regularly hear us and I hope your heart is regularly able to join us in praying for the president, praying for the cabinet. Praying for Congress and the mayor and the city council members. When we do that, we are not being political, we're being biblical. We're just obeying what God has said as we pray not only for ourselves, but we, we pray for others. And so we are, we are meant to pray together all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And here's what Paul says, that the gathered church praying that way that their prayers are connected to certain outcomes. I've called it peace and piety. You see there, he's got four words there at the end of chapter two. He says that we should pray this way, or at the end of verse one, excuse me, uh, excuse me verse two of chapter two. He said we should pray this way, why? That we, the church, may lead certain kinds of lives. Peaceful and quiet lives. Anybody need any peace and quiet? Yes, Lord. Don't we need it? We, we, we are mothers of young children who from the time they get up, all they keep saying is, mama, 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 mama. And they drive you to say, I need some peace and quiet. We are, we are people who work in various places that are often filled with strife and filled with challenge and and the one thing that seems to be missing in the workplace for some of us is peace and quiet. 
we look out into our community and and we see an absence of peace and quiet. We, we just like, oh, I, I just need some peace and quiet. Here's the question for us, though. How many of us have considered that the presence or absence of peace and quiet is connected to the presence or absence of prayer? He's saying here that peace and quiet, that that much sought after, that much enjoyable experience where our minds are at rest, our hearts are at rest, our bodies are at rest, there's no threats to us in the environment, we feel a kind of safety. He's saying that 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 precious peace and, and quiet comes from praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. If we're not prayerful, we need not think that we're going to be peaceful. Not very long, at least. There's just too much in the world to trouble us. There's too much in our lives to trouble us. There's just too much that's broken in the world to think that peace and quiet is only going to be achieved by vacations. Or, or Netflix. <laughs> You know, choose your thing, right? We all have ways that we self-medicate when it comes to peace and quiet. And this text is begging us to consider that it comes from prayer. And then, and then notice now, he says, not only is there that kind of peace, but there is also piety that comes from this. Piety, fancy, fancy word that basically means a, a, a relationship with God. He says, peace and quiet, godly and dignified, or you may have a, a, a version that says uh, reverential or something to that effect, but basically it's describing now the quality of our relationship with God, that as a result of this kind of prayer life together as a church, um, one of the things that sort of comes from that is that we find ourselves looking more like God, godly, and honoring and respecting and enjoying God, dignified or reverential. And, and those things are, are not just all about us, but those things also have a kind of public quality, right? So that if we're praying this way, what we expect is God to give, yes, his church, peace and quiet, godliness and, and reverence or, or dignity. But we also expect that to have a kind of salt and light and, and public effect in the society at large. We have lived, in my estimation, you can correct me up the door. This is just an opinion. It's not the Bible. I'm going to step over here because it's just an opinion, not the Bible. We have lived, in my estimation, in these last 10 years, the most troublesome decade I think I've ever witnessed in my 52 years of life. I know what you're saying. I can't believe he's 52. <laughs> half a century. Half, just half now. <laughs> peanut gallery active back there. <laughs> I can't think of a period more troublesome in, in, in our little country here and more troublesome in the church than these last 10 years. And here's the question as I'm sitting with this text this week, meditating on it, thinking about it, preparing to, to, to come to you, hopefully with the word of the Lord this morning. Here's the question that, that it sort of begged for me. Is this sort of troublesome decade, is it actually symptomatic of a deeper problem, not our politics, not our racial strife, not class strife, not gender strife? Is it symptomatic of a deeper problem of prayerlessness in the church? Because as go our prayer lives, so go our church lives. And, and as go our prayer lives, this text, I think, would have us to believe, so go the lives of our country and our cities and our counties, our neighborhoods. So I wonder, as we look out on a neighborhood that has this problem or that problem, or look out on a city and a country that has this problem and that problem, I wonder if we ought not be sort of saying, wait a minute, you know what? That actually isn't the problem. Have I prayed for that? Have I bent knee and bent neck and called upon the name of the Lord with God's people for that issue? Because I think that the basic logic of this text is if we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, the result is going to be peace and piety. 
and I know this is obvious, but it's worth saying, if, if godliness and um, dignity or reverence is, is sort of a shorthand for describing our spiritual lives, then it's really clear in this text that, that we are only doing as well in our walk with God, again, as we are actively praying. That if we want to grow in the Lord, if we want to be close to the Lord, if we want to honor the Lord, this text says, okay, basic job responsibility number one is to pray. Is to pray, is to seek the Lord in prayer. So how do we apply this? What do we, what do we make of this? Let me give you four or five things real quick. Maybe you're like me and you're thinking, ah, I need to do something about my prayer life. And the Spirit is nudging you, and maybe the Spirit is nudging you well before this sermon, and you want to pay attention to the Spirit's promptings. Let me give you four or five ways you may put this into action. There are other things you could do. These are just four or five that I thought of. Number one, let us pray for our prayer lives. We need not think that we can pray for everything in our lives except how we pray to pray for that too, because being able to pray effectively is just as much a matter of grace as everything else in our lives, right? But we, we will be tempted to white knuckle it, won't we? We'll be tempted to go, okay, let me buckle down. Let me get, let me get serious now, and let me start praying, and five minutes later, we're asleep beside the bed. Is that just me? You know? I'm trying to confess some things to y'all. Obviously, you know, I have prayed sometimes, and and got into it real good. At least it sounded good to me. And then I noticed that the words were beginning to slur and to come slower and slower. And then I woke up like, what was I talking about? So let's pray for our prayer lives, that God would give us grace in our prayer lives. Number two, let's plan for our prayer lives, right? We hardly do anything without a plan, not anything that we really uh, wish to be consistent in, right? So let's, let's make a plan. When are we going to play, pray? Uh, where in the house are we going to pray? Uh, if we're going to be praying with others, with, you know, with whom are we going to pray? Maybe that's a small group. That's our triad group. Uh, that's the prayer meetings on first Thursdays. Uh, that's the PSA teams, right? And, and regarding the PSA teams, notice that the first letter is P for prayer, right? And I know just I want to encourage you guys who are, who are being so faithful in the PSA teams and encourage us as a church because I've already heard the temptation uh, that we feel uh, in, in our zeal and our, in our hopefulness of, of getting something done or doing something right now. When is something going to happen? As if prayer is not something happening, right? Take the long view of these PSA teams. Remember, they're based on Jeremiah 29 where God sent his people into exile for 70 years. So what we want is a 70-year vision for impacting home ownership, for impacting food security, for impacting family formation and family stability, for impacting the, the shalom, the peace of our, of our city and neighborhood, for impacting the advance of the gospel. We want a 70-year vision for that. So if we are spending time right now praying, we're doing the most important work. Don't lose heart. We'll reap if we don't faint. So plan for your prayer lives. When will you pray? Who will you pray with? How will you organize your prayer life? Will you use a prayer journal? Will you just pray through the scripture, um, the things that you see in the scripture? Will you pray through the membership directory? Take the membership directory, pray through one page a day. You'll pray for six persons in the church family each day, and you'll pray through the whole membership every month, every 30 days, right? It's a wonderful way to get to know the church. Uh, to get to know each other and to do something spiritually meaningful for each other is to pray through the membership directory. So pray for our prayer lives, plan how we're going to pray, participate in prayer with others. Don't do it Lone Ranger. I mean, we all should pray individually, but I do think for most of us, our understanding of the Christian life is far too individualistic. Right? We read a text like this, and we read it as applying to me as an individual, not realizing that Paul's addressing the whole church. I think what we, what we need more of in our church life, thinking out loud here, again, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is we need more times of corporate prayer. It's easier to pray together than it is to pray apart. It really is. And so we just need more times of corporate prayer. I don't know if we need to go back to something we were doing early in the pandemic. Uh, Pastor Dennis and others were organizing those lunchtime prayer calls, 
Those were sweet times. We don't necessarily have to do it every day, but we could. Or if we need to move those to early morning, since people are now going back to offices and things of that sort. I, I don't know if we need to say, hey, look, right now we got prayer first Thursday. First Thursday is the month. The other, the other Thursdays we're doing Bible study. I, maybe we just need two meetings. We need a separate prayer meeting. We need a Bible study meeting. Let's talk about that. We do need more prayer in our congregational life, though. Right? So as we are reassembling as a church, let's, let's think about that. Let's, let's work that out. And then finally, just to, we're going to be signing the covenant after the service. I just want to remind us of what's in our covenant, what we commit to. There's a line in there that says, we will not neglect to gather together or to pray for ourselves and others. This is something that we are promising to God and to each other. That we'll pray for each other, pray for ourselves. It will be a community of prayer. Let's rededicate ourselves to prayer this month, to talking with God, all kinds of conversations about all kinds of things for all kinds of people. And let's wait and watch as peace and quiet fall upon our church, fall upon our neighborhood, as godliness and dignity. Notice the text says in verse 2, in every way becomes our testimony. So, beloved, let's pray together and look for peace and piety. But notice the second thing that Paul tells us here. He continues his train of thought in verses 3 and 4, that when the church gathers in prayer, it also leads to God's pleasure and salvation. God's pleasure and salvation for the lost. Notice what he says in verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul gives his exhortation to pray, and then he just sort of stops for a moment in verse 3 and just says, this is good. Praying like that and the fruit that comes from that kind of prayer is an objectively good thing. It means it's right. It's pure. It's good. It's good to pray. I was on staff at a church previously as a brother on staff for a while there named Mike Gilbart Smith, British brother. And at that church, we used to have service reviews. So at the end of the Sunday, uh, we'd have a Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service. And after the Sunday night service, all the staff and some of the leaders would gather and we'd just reflect on the Lord's day, what went well, what went poorly, what did the Lord do in our heart? And uh, we, we would talk about every part of the service, the prayers, the singing, the, the preaching. And um, we would come around and get to Mike, and, and the pastor would say, Mike, what did you think about the prayers this morning? Mike would say in a British accent, very posh accent, I wish I could do it, it's good to pray. I always thought that was a weak answer. It was right out the Bible, isn't it? Right here in verse 3, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God. As Christian people, we, we want to know how to please God, don't we? God just made that easy for us. He just told us what gives him pleasure. Seeing me and you, his sons and daughters, praying. It pleases God. When I was reading this, preparing a sermon, it took me back to Genesis 1 and 2. Remember, each day of creation, each act of creation, God looked at what he had created. What did he say? And it's good. It's good. And here in the church, he has called together for himself a people who were no people. He has made us a new creation, and he's called us to pray. And it's just like it was a day of creation. And he steps back and he looks at the church and he says, it's good. With pleasure, with joy. God delights to hear from us. We got some people who call us that we don't really want, we don't really talk to, right? I remember, some of us are old enough to remember when caller ID got started. Y'all, if you're young, you take it for granted. Everybody's number pops up, right? But there was a day when you actually had to answer the phone not knowing who was on the other side. It's true. And then this man created something called caller ID. That's it. That's it. People would call and it'd come up. Now, you didn't have the phone in your pocket those days. You had to plug it into the wall. It sat on a table. 
and the ID would come up and you would look over there and you see whose name it is and, and you'd be like, oh, I don't want to talk to them. Let the answer machine get it. You know what I mean? Screening stuff, right? God's not screening your calls. Not screening your call. There is not a single son or daughter of the Lord that he is not happy to hear from. Old saints used to sing about Jesus on the main line. Tell him what you want. Listen, we, we need to have Jesus on the main line, beloved, and to tell him what, he, what we want and how it's going and, and know that he's there delighted, pleased to hear from us and pleased to do things in our lives that lead to peace and quiet, that lead to godliness and dignity in every way. This is pleasing to God. An exercise for you. I'll encourage you to maybe ask 10 Christian friends if they go to a good church. And then I want to ask you, we already judging our friends, man. We help us, Lord. Pray of intercession for this sister down front here. Um, <laughs> ask 10 Christian friends if they go to a good church. And then ask them what makes it a good church. And then listen to see how many say we pray together. That we are praying church. Shouldn't that be a, a common definition of what a good church is? We are praying church. You know, the, 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 the one compliment that should really go out of style and, and, and not be a compliment any longer is when we call people prayer warriors. Right? What, what we're really acknowledging is that they pray and the rest of us not so much. And, and the community of God's people should be full of prayer warriors, right? It should be, should be full of prayer warriors such that to say that somebody's a prayer warrior would be meaningless. I mean, it wouldn't be any real compliment at all because actually you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a prayer warrior, right? So our definition of what it means to be a good church, beloved, I think from this text needs to include that we are praying people that we seek the Lord while he may be found. And we call upon his name because we love him and, and he loves us. Now notice that Paul continues in the logic now. He comes on to say, when he mentions God, he tells us who God is. He's God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He tells us two things. He gives us God's title, and, and I would say by that title, God's character, that he is a savior, he is a rescuer, he is a deliverer. He's the one who will snatch you out of trouble. And I think Paul here has in mind his, 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 his title, his character as a savior, particularly as it relates to saving us from hell. That God's the kind of God who even if we are running full speed, toward a bottomless hell, he's the kind of God who will grab us and, and snatch us back from the flame and snatch us back from judgment and, and bring, him, bring us close to his heart. He's a, he's a savior. And then Paul tells us his desire. is a desire consistent with his character as savior. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So if you're ever wondering, if you're not a Christian, what does God want from me? Here it is right here. God wants you to be saved and to come to know the truth, particularly the truth about him and his son, Jesus Christ. He's not keeping his desire for you a secret. He's not hiding it and saying to you, okay, now you find it. And, he, and he's not moving the goalposts on you. Every time you get close, you know, he moves the goalposts. Your life is not a game of, of warmer, warmer, colder, colder, guessing as to what God wants. He tells you in his Bibles why we treasure the Bible so much. He desires for you to be rescued from death and sin and his anger. And he desires for you to be brought to him in full acceptance and forgiveness and love so that you might live forever with him 
And, and the way you get that is through the knowledge of the truth. And here's the truth, beloved. The truth is God made you in his image and his likeness. Precisely so that you could live with him forever. But the truth is we have all sinned, everyone in this room, little boys, little girls, old men, old women. We have all sinned, which means we have done what we wanted to do rather than what God told us to do. We've disobeyed God. And for that, we deserve judgment. And here's the truth, the most beautiful part of this truth. We could not rescue ourselves, and so God rescued us himself. He sent his son Jesus into the world in our humanity to die in our place on the cross to pay the penalty, the punishment, to take the punishment for our sins. And three days later, he raised Jesus from the grave to prove to the world that Jesus' sacrifice was finished and that he had accepted that sacrifice and to prove to the world that now through faith in Jesus, we too could be accepted with God, forgiven by God, given all of God's gifts of eternal life and righteousness and joy and pleasure and, and love in his presence forevermore. That's the truth that God wants you to come to know, and he wants you to respond to that truth by confessing your sin to him, admitting what God already knows about all of us. Yes, I am a sinner. These are ways I do sin, and, and I'm tired of that. I don't want to do that anymore. And turning away from sin and putting your faith, your trust, your complete confidence in Jesus, who is the Son of God, who died for your sins personally, and was raised from the grave so that you personally might live forever through faith in him. That's the truth God wants you to know and accept and believe and treasure and follow until you follow it right into the kingdom of heaven. This is what God is like. He's not looking to crush you. He's not an angry God looking to hurl lightning bolts at you to strike you down. Things are going wrong in your life. He's not punishing you uh, by making your life difficult. If anything, those difficulties are meant to make you stop for a moment and look back to him. So are the good things meant to make you look back to him because he wants you to know him, to come to the knowledge of the truth, and to live forever in his love. You can do that right now. You can forget the rest of this sermon. You could say, I want that life. And you can call right now upon the name of the Lord in prayer and ask him to save you. Ask him to give you grace to believe and to help you follow Jesus in faith. That would be the best application of this sermon you could ever make if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And Christian, notice again what our God is like. He's a Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Christians do a curious thing with this. They begin to have these sort of theological debates. You know, some people say, oh, see, this, this means that salvation is available to everybody. And, and, and that other side who says God has a particular people that he saved is wrong. And that, that side says, hey, here's some other texts that say, God, God, listen, it, it's kind of not about that. He's telling us about God's character, not giving us a theological knot to cut through. Just stop and ponder for a moment that God is our Savior. He rescued us, and he will rescue us, and he will keep rescuing us until the rescue is complete. He wants us to be saved. That's, that's why you believe in him. He, he wanted you to believe in him. And he gave you grace to believe in him. That's why you believe in him. And he wants you to keep growing in the knowledge of the truth. And yeah, there's a place for theological debate, but beloved, trust me, if, if those debates take your eye off God's character, they are distractions. If they drive you deeper into God's character, they are blessings. This is our God. And I want you to see the connection between a praying church and a peaceful church and a, and a pious church, and the salvation of the world. Here's how I put it this way. As prayer increase, and peace and quiet increase, and piety increases, and the church is known for that, more people come to know Jesus. It's hard for a rowdy church 
to tell people about a loving Savior. It's hard for a chaotic church, a church full of conflict, a church full of strife and arguing, it's hard for them to make the case that God is a loving God who is reconciling people to himself. You ain't reconciled. How God going to be a reconciler? As chaos and conflict go up, the gospel gets cloudy. As peace reigns, so does the Prince of Peace. So we need to be a praying church, a peaceful church, and a pious church so that we might be a powerful church in the salvation of our neighbors and friends. Now, let me, that's not just me making an argument from this text. That's actually what the Bible argues in another place. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking about the Corinthian church, and if you've read that letter, you know that that's a church with problems. That's a church that's wild and, and out of order. And he's addressing this in, in chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, and he's making this connection between order and peace and the effect it has in the minds and hearts of people who are not yet believers. He writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now, his point is not that you shouldn't speak in tongues. He's not making an argument about gifts at this point. He's making an argument about the order of the church. He was a church where everybody's trying to speak at one time. And Paul says that's confusion, and God's not a God of confusion. He's saying, put these things in order. And he tells us why. Verse 23, people come in here, see you wilding, out of control. They don't think great things about God. They think bad things about you. Are these people not out of their minds? Verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. And the difference between prophecy here and tongues is prophecy is in understandable speech and people are built up by it. So if you come into a church and people are preaching God's word in a clear way, they understand it. And the unbeliever, even the one uh, who doesn't know Jesus or believe in Jesus yet, or the outsider, the one who's not a member of the church, they come in, they hear that plain preaching of God's truth, and they are convicted by it. They are, they are convinced of their guilt, and they are convinced of his truth. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed or open. So falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what we want in the life of our church, to be a church of such prayer, such peace, such order, such piety, such clarity, that people who don't know anything about the Bible or anything about Jesus, people who've never been in a church, come in and are convinced by the truth. And having been convinced by the truth, they fall down and worship Jesus. I'm led to believe that in, in, a, in a sort of, not in some ultimate theological sense, I don't want to have this debate with you, but I'm going to make this comment, and if you want to debate it, debate it with Pastor Tim. I, I'm led to believe that there are some people who are not saved because they are churches that are not in order. And there are some people who have walked into churches, and those churches have been so jacked up that what God appointed them to hear, they did not hear. And what God appointed them to believe, they did not believe. And so they are not yet saved. We don't want to be such a church, ever by God's grace. So we want to be a church that pursues prayer, knowing that we have a God who pursues sinners and will save them. And we want to keep praying for them. So you may be praying for a son or daughter who doesn't yet believe, a spouse who doesn't yet believe, parents who don't yet believe, extended family and coworkers, and you've maybe been praying for them for years. You may have to pray for them years still. But let the rest of the family pray with you about that. And let's persevere in prayer because we know that prayer changes things, including the hearts of the so-called hardest sinners. Which brings us to our third thing. When the church gathers to pray and pray as the Lord instructs, it puts Jesus at the center. Puts Jesus at the center. Prayer has a way of focusing us. 
of getting the right things before our eyes when we have maybe been distracted with so many other things going on around us. And notice what, what God says, or Paul says there, uh, beginning in verse 5, he says, for there is one God. When he says for now, he's given us the basis for everything he said in the previous couple of verses. Really, he's about to give us a theology of prayer and why prayer works and why we're even to pray, able to pray at all. He says, for there is one God, and there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul now says, listen, we, there's only one God. They're not many gods. They're not different gods. There's only one God. And really what he's saying is there's only one way to that God. It's through a mediator, a go-between. In the Old Testament, the priests in the Old Testament were mediators between God's people and God. And, and the priest would wear on his turban uh, a, a sort of um, placard, a little sign that says, holy unto the Lord. And as he stood between the people and God, he represented God's holiness to the people, and then he represented the people to their holy God. He was a mediator that bridged the gap between God and man, but he was only a symbol. His mediation was only symbolic. The real mediator, who really does reconcile God and man, is the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God. He's the one who really is the go-between, representing God's holiness to us and presenting his own holiness as ours to God. That's the only reason why we are able to come into God's presence in prayer. Christ has made the way. He's sanctified even our prayers. You realize that if there's something sinful in your prayer or something unwise in your prayer, it's washed by the blood. God, like, he'll pluck that thing out and hear the real thing that needs to be heard. So even our fumbling at prayer and our inadequacy in prayer, that's no hindrance to praying to God because we've got a mediator, a go-between. Now, you guys, if you've got siblings, you know what a mediator is. If you've got siblings, I'm the youngest of eight, and there's like 10 years between me and the next, the next sibling. And uh, they had reached the age where mama didn't believe nothing they said, right? Mama was always sort of suspicious of whatever they were requesting. So if they had a request that they're trying to get from mama, guess what they did? You go ask mama. Go ask mama so-and-so, right? Because they understood that, that as the baby, you know, as the youngest, I had a kind of special favor with mama, right? And, and if she didn't detect that they were really the ones behind it, then they could get that yes through me, but if they went directly, they were going to get a no. All right, we understand what a mediator is. The Son of God has a special favor with the Father. And he goes to the Father on our behalf. And he always lives to intercede for us. And, and our going through the Son of God, praying in his name, is what guarantees us the yes. It's what gets the yes. And so Paul here is still giving us a theology of prayer as well as a theology of the gospel. This is gospel prayer that he's talking about. There is one God and there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And so when we pray and pray through Christ and get Christ into focus, he, he just takes up the whole center of our lives. He becomes the North Star. When we're not praying, so many other things become the center, don't they? The kids become the center. The spouse becomes the center. Work becomes the center. So many other things just start elbowing God off the throne. When we pray and pray until we pray, Jesus moves into the middle. God takes up the center, and our lives are reorganized the way they ought to be reorganized. And this, beloved, is not only the theology of prayer, but it's the goal of prayer, that we would pray and be brought back into line with the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, in the filling of his spirit. We might live and walk that way. Paul says in verse 7, it's for this reason that, you know, he's a, a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And he says there, I'm an apostle. And Paul always had to clarify with the people he's writing to, no, really, I'm an apostle. I'm not lying. I didn't make this up. I know y'all don't believe me because I used to be this persecutor and blasphemer and a violent man. But no, God has really done this work in my life. And he said, now, I'm a preacher of this gospel because of this Jesus. 
right? And we ought to, like the Apostle Paul, be able to say, whatever it is we're doing in life, I'm a doer of this thing because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an attorney because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a teacher because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a social worker because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a sanitation worker because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm unemployed because of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I'm going to serve him unemployed, you know, with a full heart because he loves me and I'm his and I matter in his kingdom. I matter not because I have a certain kind of job. I matter because he loves me. So may we get Christ at the center, the mediator, the one who gave his life life as a ransom for all of us to buy us back from sin and death and to present us to the Father. May we pray till he is our North Star, till he is our focus, until we find ourselves consumed in him. So, beloved, I want you to pray with me that we would be a praying church. I want to encourage you at your lunchtime discussions, your evening, your dinner discussions to talk about how's your prayer life really? And to talk about how our prayer life really is and to dream together and talk together about how God wants us to grow in this way. We want to be a praying church so that we would have peace and piety, so that we would please God and see his salvation. And so that Jesus would be the center of our all. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we do ask that you would do these things in our hearts, do these things in the life of our church. We can't pray apart from your grace and apart from your spirit, and our prayers are ineffectual apart from Jesus. So help us to pray. And when we have begun to pray, help us to continue to pray. And grant that our prayers, Lord, might change things. Change things in our personal lives, change things in our church life, change things in society, change everything. Use the prayers of your people, Lord, I pray, for the display of your glory and for the blessing of all people. In Jesus' name, amen.